Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 15, Paul writes, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members... As slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit To holiness and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I vividly remember visiting one of my kids in his elementary school room. And the kids were performing an exercise when I walked in. They were practicing a fire drill. The teacher said, now children, in case of a fire, stop, drop, roll. And I was thinking, if you're on fire, probably you're not thinking a lot about stopping, dropping, and rolling. So why do they have this kind of a drill? Because they want to drill it into the kid's brain. Hey, look, if you're on fire, you probably won't remember a whole lot of things. But it's probably a good idea for you to remember. Don't run, stop. Don't stay up, drop. Don't just let the fire burn, roll. Paul warns in chapter 6 for the Christians who are enslaved by sin. Who have been set on fire. No. Reckon. Yield. Know that you've been crucified with Christ, verses 1 through 3. That you've been resurrected with Christ, verses 4 and 5. That you are now both dead and alive, in verses 6 through 10. That you are no longer slaves to sin. You are alive to the Savior, in verses 8 through 10. So reckon, that means count on or consider The crucifixion and resurrection as an accomplished fact, verse 11. Yield, that means give up, present yourself, verses 12 through 23. As members, your body as instruments, if you will, of righteousness. So what does the the right kind of yielding incorporate? Since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean that we're free to sin? Paul's answer... No, 
Yielding to the Lord produces favor and freedom and then fruit, favor, freedom, fruit. And so when Paul says, present yourself, he does it some five times between verses 13 to 19 and verse 16. So the apostle of grace is also... The attorney of grace. Paul has successfully argued that we are saved by grace at the end of chapter 5 verse 21. Remember where it says, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, Justification by faith is not simply a legal matter between me and God. It's a living relationship. It is a justification that brings life, unquote. And so, as a pastor and as a minister, I often hear people, even other ministers, complain or argue Well, I know this is wrong, but I'm a child of God and God will forgive me. That's his job. I'm not under law, but under grace. Remember, remember, freedom in Christ is not freedom to sin. F.F. Bruce says to make under grace an excuse for sinning is a sign that not that you don't really understand grace at all, unquote. Paul has made an argument. We are believers. We are not unbelievers. We are not make-believers. We are men and women who have identified with Jesus, with his love, with his sacrifice, with his death and burial and resurrection. Paul argues that Christ. Well, Paul argues that the Christian should not sin. But then he also argues that we need not sin. How? We have favor from the Lord. We have freedom in the Lord. We have the fruit from the Lord, the kind of fruit that nourishes and inspires, the kind of fruit that manifests itself in a real life, in a real relationship, in a life-giving relationship with the living Lord of the universe. And so how does he do this? Look at the favor from the Lord in verse 15. What then, he asks, shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace. Certainly not. He's carrying the theme. We've talked at length about this in verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under law, but under grace, he wrote in verse 14. So Paul warns the reader. He warns them. Beware of excuses Some people are terrified by grace. Why? Well, gosh, if you're living under under grace, well, some people might use that as an excuse to sin. Paul has something to say about those people who would make an appeal 
that grace is an, a, a license to sin or an excuse to sin, Paul writes, just cut it out. Just stop saying that. We are free from the law, but we're not lawless. Grace means freedom to serve the Lord instead of yourself. It's a different kind of a freedom. It's a freedom to submit and to love and to obey. It's not an excuse. No one has more excuses than the elderly. And the reason why I'm picking on the elderly is because I am an elderly now. I can live with my arthritis and my dentures fit me fine. I can see with my bifocals, but I sure do miss my mind. (laughs) Yeah, we laugh. There are limitations. There are setbacks that come with age. But there's strength and power to live a life for Christ. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Not weak. Be strong in grace. Paul has already argued that our loyalty is not to sin, but to God. We are under grace, verse 14. We are under grace, verse 15. And that means that sin has lost its ability to dominate our lives. We are under new management. We are free to live in obedience to the new head. That means we're free to disregard the old head with favor comes freedom. And that's Paul's argument. We have favor. And that leads to freedom. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves, whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? The word slaves will appear three times in two verses. The word is doulos. The word is found some 125 times in the Greek New Testament. Sometimes the word is translated servant. It is 118 times in the King James Version. But in our culture... A servant is like an employee who works for wages. But here, the meaning is a slave. Not a person who works for wages, but in effect, a person who's owned by a master. In John 8, 34, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And so Jesus undermines and it distances himself from the person who self-identifies as a person who lives a life of sin, but is in fact not a slave of sin. Jesus says exactly the opposite. If you live a life of sin, you are a slave of sin. Now I want you to just pause for a moment. When Paul wrote the book of Romans and he submitted the letter to the Romans, the Romans would have gathered together, and I'm going to suggest to you, At least half, possibly more than half of the people reading Paul's letter or hearing Paul's letter 
were Roman household slaves. Some scholars estimate that there might have been as many as 50 to 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Slavery in the Roman Empire was very different from American slavery or 18th century slavery. During the American Civil War, Jefferson Davis said, Slavery was established by decree of Almighty God. Abraham Lincoln said, Whenever I hear anyone arguing for slavery, I feel the strong impulse to see it tried on him personally. Yeah, it's easy for a person to say slavery was established by decree of Almighty God unless you are a slave. People will have all kinds of justifications for slavery. To be a slave in Paul's day was more than just mere servitude. For the slave in Paul's day, they lost their identity. Their identity was in their master's name and in their master's household and in their master's will. It didn't matter if you were a Greek or a Hebrew or male or female. In that culture, ethnicity didn't matter. Slaves were chattel. They were property. In Paul's day, a person could obtain their freedom financially. Or as a gift, they could purchase their freedom. But even after they purchased their freedom, in that culture and society, they were forever labeled freedmen. The purpose of the term was to accentuate their former status as slaves. Even when they purchased their freedom, they couldn't always distance themselves from that designation. In the Emancipation Proclamation that Abraham Lincoln signed, it didn't set free a single slave. Not one slave received their freedom from the Emancipation Proclamation. All the Emancipation did was give each and every slave the opportunity to fight for himself and to fight for herself. Paul knew that slaves obeyed their masters. And so his argument is in Christ, we have a new master and we have a new obedience. In verse 17, it says, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. He writes, though you were slaves of sin. And this is exactly what we were, but now we're made Free in Christ Jesus. Apart from the Lord Jesus, we're still slaves. And so for the person who even for a moment imagines that, he, that, that, that himself or herself is free apart from Christ, they're living a dream. For the person who says, look, I don't want to be anybody's slaves. I don't want to be Satan's slave and I don't want to be Jesus' slave. I just want to be my own man. Well, guess what? The moment that you say, I want to be my own man or my own woman, you become a slave of the very passions that you determine are right for you. Apart from Jesus, apart from Jesus, we're slaves to our whims. We're prisoners to our passions and addictions, and selfishness. 
Trench points out that the basic connotation of due loss, he, he says when he writes, the due loss is properly the bondman. The root meaning is deo, one that has a permanent relationship of servitude to another, his will altogether swallowed up in the will of the other. The person reading this, the persons hearing this for the first time, half of them being household slaves, are hearing Paul use the illustration of the legal circumstance that they find themselves in. And as they're thinking about it, Paul adds, Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. That means from the inside out, from the heart, from the heart. They believed on the inside of their heart that it was true what Paul had said about Jesus. That it was true what Paul had said about his life and his death and his resurrection. That a living Lord of the universe had come back to life so that sinners could experience forgiveness and hope. Paul is saying you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were instructed. Entrusted. In other words, they didn't just simply go to church and hear a message and decide that they're going to live differently. They believed from their heart the truth of the gospel that Jesus can free people from the slavery of sin. Think about what Paul is saying. He is in effect saying that the favor and the freedom comes because we have A new obedience in verse 16. We're furnished by a new influence based on sincerity. We used to be people in sin. No longer. We obeyed Jesus from the heart. So the source and the influence of our our new motivation is internal and not external. Our behavior isn't dependent on our circumstances, but on our character. It's based on what's going on on the inside, character. I was reading this week, um, I think it was Jacques Ellul, it, it might have been somebody else, but he was asked the question about, what do you think is the greatest definition of character? And he thought about it and he said that character is more than just what you do when no one's looking. Character is when someone's looking at you and you don't know they're looking at you. You see, people are watching you. They're watching the way you behave. They're watching the way you speak. They're watching the way that you act. You see, the most convincing, the most convincing commitment of character comes when you look at someone who doesn't realize that you're looking at them and you see their life filled with hope, filled with integrity, filled with joy, filled with the reality of what it means to know and to love and to serve the Lord Jesus. The heart is the wellspring of life. The Romans' obedience was rooted in their hearts. The Roman people were a people who acted from the core of their being. We, we talk about that. We even use a, a, a phrase. We use the term core value. Core value is what you are when no one is looking. Core value is what you think and how you act. 
This is the example of slavery that Paul holds up to the world and us. It's a heartfelt obedience to Jesus Christ the Lord and his word. Paul is using the illustration not to address the social indignation of slavery, but the spiritual reality that you are either a slave to sin or you are a slave to the Savior. Their obedience is to Jesus in verse 18. Consequently, they could no longer be slaves to sin. And so the truth of the Bible changes us and it shapes us and it molds us. And part of the argument that Paul is making is that the culture doesn't change us. We change the culture. Our heart is different. Our life is different. Our circumstances are different. Because of Jesus, Jesus has saved us. He's forgiven us. And so in verse 18 when it says, And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now let's just backtrack just a little bit. We have favor. And we have freedom based on what? We have a new obedience in verse 16. Based on what? We have a new influence in verse 17. Based on what? We have a new freedom in verse 18. Here's Paul's argument. We are free to obey Jesus in verse 16 instead of sin. We are free to be influenced by Jesus instead of our culture in verse 17. We have a new freedom in verse 18 rather than being enslaved, incarcerated, held by past lust and past passion. So the passage is interesting on so many levels. In verse 18, read it again because I want you to see it with new eyes. And having been set free from sin, literally in the original language it says, Having been set free from the sin. The exact verb and preposition uses a technical expression that was used in ancient Roman documents as a piece of paper that would free the slave. The words that are used are words... Of manumission or emancipation. You may not know what manumission or emancipation means. But it means the legal device whereby someone who was once held in slavery is now legally free to go. There's two kinds of people reading Paul's letter. One who has always been free and then one who has never been free. There's another category, I guess. Those who used to be slaves, but who have now been set free. And they would have recognized this language. They would have recognized the language of, I used to be a slave, but either through through the generosity of my master or through a financial transaction, I have been made free. Some of Paul's readers were actual freedmen. 
they had experienced this very thing. But Paul introduces something incredible. He basically says, the moment that you were freed from one form of slavery, you were given permission to enter into a new form of slavery. Now, if you're an ex-slave, there's one thing that you don't want, and that's to ever be a slave again. But Paul is going to argue that there's a new kind of slavery in town. It's a slave of righteousness. That we have this great privilege that we can be God's due loss. Paul points out this freedom from sin results in a new form of commitment and relationship. We are slaves to righteousness. Now I want you to return back to the definition I talked to you about before. What does it mean to be a slave? It means that you are swallowed up in the will of someone else. You are swallowed up in the will of someone else. And so Paul is basically arguing now you are free because you are Christ's slaves. You are swallowed up in the will of Jesus. We have a peek into the pastor's heart. Because remember at the opening part of this particular letter to the, to the Romans, Paul says, Paul, do loss. He's not asking them to do anything that he himself ha- hasn't done. Paul was born free. He voluntarily, wonderfully, personally enters into the free will relationship of slavery to Jesus. Paul argues our new behavior reflects and honors Christ's character. And so Jesus didn't save us from sin to dishonor that character. Or to dishonor him so that we could keep on sinning. And so in verse 19 he says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Now again, what is he doing? He's saying, I'm using a human illustration. Why? Because of the weakness of your flesh. What does that mean? Your flesh, when Paul is talking about it, isn't just the skin and bones on your body. It isn't the the muscle and the tissue and the nerves. Your flesh is everything that you are apart from Christ. Hold that thought. When you see flesh in the book of Romans, think everything that I am apart from Christ. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Everything I am apart from Christ. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, eyes, nose, ears, mouth, hands, feet, and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Think about it. Favor. That has led to a new kind of freedom. What, 
How do you have this freedom? We have a new obedience. We get to obey Jesus instead of ourselves. We have a new influence. We're influenced by Jesus and everything that he has said and done. We have a new freedom. So we have a new obedience in verse 16, a new influence in verse 17, a new freedom in verse 18. And now he's going to argue in verses 19 and 20, we have a new basis on which to serve. What is Paul doing in this verse? Paul is explaining the slavery principle. At the heart of slavery is obedience. A slave could do many, many things in that culture and society, but a slave could not disobey. So now Paul continues to stretch the human illustration. He's stretching the human illustration into a radical call for righteousness and holiness. Our service used to belong to our old master. Our old master controlled our thinking. Our old master controlled our speaking. Our old master determined what we would look at, what we would talk about, what we would handle or touch or taste. And so Paul is basically saying, you have a new master leading to holiness Paul is inviting the reader to become slaves of Jesus. He says, I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body to slavery and impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them with a new obedience and a new influence and a new freedom and a new service. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul writes, This is the will of God, even your sanctification. That's the same word in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 here that's translated in verse 19 for holiness, your sanctification. Exact same phrase. So when Paul says, this is the will of God, even your sanctification, if you've ever prayed a prayer and said, Lord, I want to know your will. Now you know it. You know God's will. It's God's will that you be holy. And I know because we live in the culture and society in which we live, we think of holy as having glowing white hair and a very long beard. And you dress in a robe and you carry a stick around and you tell everybody to repent. But that's actually not the meaning of holiness in the Bible. Paul uses the metaphor, slaves of righteousness for sanctification or holiness. What does this mean? The expression holiness or sanctification will appear some 300 times in the New Testament. Some 760 times in the Old Testament. The basic meaning of the word was to set apart for a specific function. In the Old Testament days, you would set aside days and you would set aside seasons. Those days were set apart. Physical objects could be set apart. People could be 
set apart. In Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, it says, For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore sanctify yourselves. Set yourself apart. What does that mean? You're now going to be something special. What does that mean? Guess what? Your family, your friends, your neighbors, everyone around you, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, all of the, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Pepsi lights, all of them, all of them who's all surrounding you. You're going to be different. You are set apart for a specific function. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourself with any manner of creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, think about that passage in Leviticus 11.44. Set yourself aside, okay? Don't eat bugs. See, you're laughing. You're going, I don't want to eat bugs. Now you're beginning to understand. Because usually activity falls into two categories. Things I want to do and things I don't want to do. God says, don't eat bugs. And you go, thank God, I don't like bugs anyway. Don't do specific things that are going to dishonor God. You see, sanctification is different from justification. Justification deals with our standing. Sanctification deals with our state. Justification is something that God does for us. Sanctification is that which God does in us. Justification is an act. Sanctification is a work. Justification is the means. Sanctification is the end. Justification makes us safe. Sanctification makes us sound. Justification declares us good. Sanctification makes us good. That's what he's talking about. Justification removes the penalty of sin. Sanctification checks the growth and the power of sin. Justification furnishes us the track that leads to heaven. And sanctification is the train that's going to heaven. And so, let's think it through. Paul has said to us, know that you're buried with Jesus by baptism into death. Jesus died for me and as me. Jesus didn't just simply die for me. Jesus died as me. That is in my place. Everything that I deserved, he experienced. We've been planted together in the likeness of his resurrection. We've become dead to sin. Freed from sin, Romans 6, 7. Death cancels obligations. We reckon, consider verse 11 and 12. By faith, we act on the facts apart from personal feelings. We yield, that is, we stop yielding, present tense, our bodies as members of unrighteousness. We once for all, heiress tense, yield our bodies as instruments of righteousness. The idea being, once and for all, live your life like your eyes, your nose, your mouth, your hands 
hands, your feet, your body belong to Jesus. We obey. Who do we obey? Our new master, Jesus. Who do we ignore? Our old master, sin. We can only obey one master at a time. Why do we obey? Because we've been freed from sin, verse 23. Why do we obey? Because God desires the fruit of justification from believers, which can only come from obedience. Verses 21 and 22. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, the old life, that old life, that you used to have, that you used to live, that old slavery, no one could blame you because you had an old master and you had to do what the master said. But now you have a new master. And so Paul writes about the everlasting benefits. We're free from sin, because of Jesus' atoning work. We are a new creation, like it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. We have everlasting benefits in verses 21 through 23. When you see the word everlasting benefits or everlasting, think fruit. We have fruit from the Lord. So what does it say in verse 21? What fruit did you have then? In the things of which you are now ashamed, for the end of those things is death. Back up just a second. We have a new obedience in verse 16. We have a new influence in verse 17. We have a new freedom in verse 18. We have a new service in verses 19 and 20. And now, Paul says, you have a new incentive. A new incentive. In verses 21 through 23. What's the new incentive? Fruit. What kind of fruit? Two kinds of fruit. The fruit of disobedience. Shame. Death. The fruit of obedience. Everlasting life. So what is the fruit of disobedience? What fruit did you have in the things of which you are now ashamed? Remember what Jesus said in the New Testament. A good tree will produce good fruit. A bad tree will produce bad fruit. Just ask the man who's cheated on his wife. Just ask the man who's been caught with pornography on his computer and loses his job and puts his marriage at risk. Just ask the homosexual who's been diagnosed with HIV AIDS. Just ask the housewife who's contracted the sexually transmitted disease from her husband. Just ask the mother who's just gotten a call from the police department to go down to the morgue and identify her daughter's body. Even though she only took ecstasy one time. Hers wasn't a life of addiction to drugs. She made one mistake. One time. 
How many mistakes do you have to make if you're drinking and driving? How many mistakes do you have to make if you just look down at your iPhone or cell phone just for a moment and you all of a sudden are slammed into the person next to you? Our past slavery has brought us shame and disease and addictions and failed marriages and failed relationships. And for some of us, it has brought death. And so Paul writes, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and in the end, everlasting life. So what does it mean having been set free from sin? Our enslavement to Jesus brings us freedom from sin. Then it brings us sanctification. And then it brings us eternal life. In verse 22 when it says everlasting life. It can't mean temporal life. Momentary life. Limited life. Probationary life. It means eternal life. Theologians use three terms to describe being set free from sin. Non posse, non pecare. Not able not to sin. This refers to believers before their salvation. Non posse, it's not possible. Non pecare, it's not possible except for to do anything other than sin. Posse, non pecare. That means able not to sin. This describes the person who has a right relationship with God in Christ. They are saved. Now they have the power to live lives of victory. And then the theologian says, non posse picare, not able to sin. This describes our existence after we're raptured. As we experience a glorified body and a glorified existence. We have favor. We have freedom. We have fruit. And the incentive, of course, verse 23. You've heard it so many times. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the incentive. Paul concludes with a powerful statement about punishment and about reward. The reward for serving sin, death. The free gift found in Jesus, life. Sin pays its wages, death. The offer of God in Christ, eternal life. The term for wages is very interesting. It's the Greek word, Opsonion. It was a word that was used to describe the temporary pay or the provision for a soldier. There's a kind of a corollary in our own culture where the government is shut down and then the Congress authorizes payment for a specific payment, for a specific purpose. This particular word 
came to mean compensation for anyone who worked. And so he says, the compensation for anyone involved in sin is death. And, but the expression, the gift of God, is charisma. You know that word. Charis. Grace. It's something freely given. It's something graciously given. So what are the takeaways? Let's just quickly see what they might be. Number one, it's possible to be free but still live like a slave. Some of you already knew that. It's possible to be free but you still have a slave mentality. We live like slaves to sin instead of cultivating habits of holiness. So what's the other big takeaway? It's the reality of slavery. That means it's one thing to be a slave and think that you're free when in fact you're not free. For the non-Christian, they think that they're not a slave at all. They don't have to go to church. They don't have to read their Bible. They don't have to do what God wants. They don't have to do what the Bible says. They don't have to do any of that stuff. They get to do whatever they want. They're not under any prohibitions, restrictions. They feel like they're free To watch what they want to watch, say what they want to say, do what they want to do, live however they want to live, and die however they want to die. But the unbeliever goes, but I don't want to die. And reality screams, you must. Because the wages of sin is death. You're just simply getting the compensation that is due. You know, there's a perverse comfort in slavery, isn't there? Sometimes we become comfortable with our addictions. We become comfortable in the passions and desires. We want them to say to us what we think that we want for ourselves. But Paul calls us to a radical righteousness prompted by a profound slavery. Paul, in effect, is saying, you have to be a slave. Either to Satan and self or to God. Two slaveries. One leads to death. One leads to life. The abiding truth is this. Obedience is the key to our liberation. Irenaeus said, the glory of God is a man fully alive. Our spiritual life comes, of course, because of our union with Jesus. G.K. Chesterton said, quote, Obedience is but the other side of the creative will, unquote. Obedience looses the creative power of God in our lives and God will do great and wondrous things in and through the life of a soul who is submitted and obedient. And the moment that you decide to say yes to Jesus and yes to righteousness and no 
to Satan and sin, a battle will will ensue. Samuel said, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as the obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. And so the invitation for Paul, you've been given favor. You've been given freedom. You've been given fruit. Paul's argument, we should not sin. And you say, but I do. Paul argues, we need not sin. Why? You have a new basis for obedience. You have a new influence in your life. You have a new freedom. You have a new service. You have a new incentive. Everything that you need has been given to you. In order to do all that is required of you. And what's the most fundamental requirement? To turn from sin. To turn to the Savior. To allow him to live his life in you and through you and for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for that person who lives in the merry-go-round, constantly up, constantly down, constantly all around. Lord, we pray that as we think long and hard about Paul's difficult passage, that, Lord, we will remind ourselves of the simplicity of the gospel. We have favor in Jesus. We have freedom in Jesus. We have fruit in Jesus. And that sin will not bring us favor. And it won't bring us freedom. And the fruit that it will bring us is death. And so, Lord, we submit ourselves to you. We cry out to you. We call out to you, Lord. Lord, we want to live with grace. The kind of grace that justifies. The kind of grace that sanctifies. And eventually, the kind of grace that will glorify. And so, Lord, I pray again for that person. Lord, I pray that you'd fill their heart with hope, with grace and mercy, with forgiveness and love. And Father, we commit that to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name.